Welcome to How We Win. All over the world, ordinary people are doing extraordinary things, and action is the best antidote to anxiety. There is so much to cover this week from Putin's invasion of Ukraine to a historic Supreme Court nomination and President Biden's first State of the Union address. So joining us to help us break it down and hopefully teach us how to better talk with friends and family who may not share our views is the host of the podcast, Majority 54, Ravi Gupta. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And and this this is is How We Win. We've got a lot to talk about, a lot to discuss, and um, to help us make sense of it all, we thought we would just bring Ravi right into the conversation um, and have him do all all the news with us. So let's just bring Ravi right in. Ravi Gupta is the host and founder of Lost Debate and is also the co-host of the Majority 54 podcast. Prior to that, Ravi founded Arena, where he led a team that helped elect over 75 candidates and train over 1,500 political operatives. He's the co-founder and chair of Second Chance Studios, a media company that exclusively employs the formerly incarcerated. And he held a number of roles on Obama's first campaign and first term, including as assistant to David Axelrod and Susan Rice, where he was, quote, a slightly more substantive version of Gary from the <laughs> end quote. Um, with Very all of humble that, it's, statement about his work there. <laughs> it's amazing that he has uh, the time to chat with us, especially during such um, a busy week. We are grateful to have him back on the podcast. Ravi, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for welcoming me back. It's an honor. Uh, the honor is ours. And um, look, there's so much to talk about. So uh, let's just jump right into it. And thanks for lending your expertise and knowledge to this conversation with us. Um, starting with Putin's invasion of Ukraine, uh, there's 660,000 refugees have fled the Ukraine as Russia appears to be targeting civilian areas with increasingly powerful weapons. There is a 40-mile-long convoy of Russian armed forces approaching the capital city of Kiev. The Ukraine resistance has been amazing. Uh, And they've managed to hold off Putin's forces. But this troop surge is just terrifying. And honestly, it it looks to me like Putin is just heading for outright genocide. And uh, what's so striking is that this seems to be the most predictable outcome that caught all of the experts, or at least most of the experts, by surprise. I guess just because it's so hard to fathom in 2022 that – a country would use the might of their military to invade a, a sovereign country like this again, even though Putin has been consistent about his right. rhetoric and we've seen this building up for a long time. Um, Ravi, what are your thoughts as we watch this unfold? Yeah, I think it's obviously a tragic situation. You know, I, like a lot of people, are am trying to consume as much news as possible try to get a bunch of different perspectives. And I think one thing I'm noticing from the media is I think we're all using a sort of motivated reasoning to find the positive in this and thinking, all right, the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian people are fighting 
you know, a valiant effort. And a lot of the media that I read basically cataloging all the reasons why Ukraine can win this. Mm. And I think there's something to that. You know, I, I do think Trump, um, uh, sorry, interesting fair, slip up fair, there. Uh, fair Putin, swap, yeah. Uh, I think Putin <laughs> underestimated Putin certainly underestimated his enemy. I think he, he, he in a way, thought this might have been like a Setier or Belarus where he could uh, take over a country essentially with very little pushback. You know, he's painted Zelensky as essentially like a drug-addled Nazi, uh, <laughs> and I think the world has seen a much different version of him. Right. I think Putin underestimated the ability of the West to come together, and certainly the the Russian and he's also overestimated his grip on his own people. He's having to arrest protesters in his country. It seems like even some of the oligarchs uh, are uncomfortable with things have gone, mm-hmm. and even China seems to be uh, a bit hesitant uh, to go too far anymore in their public support for Putin. They'll be there for him, but they don't seem too enthusiastic for it. So I think those are all reasons to be hopeful, but. In the end, he has a much larger military. They're on the outskirts of Kiev as we're talking right now. He'll probably win the conventional war phase of this. And then the question is, what does it look like when it's an insurgency? And there is a lot of reason to believe that the insurgency will be tough for for Putin. It was a really interesting uh, interview with David Petraeus where he essentially went through the numbers and right. said, "This, if you were comparing this to Iraq... There are a lot of reasons to think that the Ukrainians will be even more successful in an insurgency against Russia than uh, certain segments of the Iraqi population were against us. And by and large, the Iraqi population that was against us there were very successful in their insurgency. And so this could go bad for for Putin, but it obviously will result in a lot of loss of life if we ever get to that point of an insurgency. Yeah, you. Um, it's interesting. You use the phrase "conventional war," and you know Putin has the numbers and, and weapons on his side as far as that goes. But this has been um, fascinating to watch the communications war play out, and it really seems that the Ukrainians, it, you know, if if this if this was a battle that was being fought when it comes to, you know, heart wrenching videos and um, inspiring speeches and really strategic tweets. It sounds trite to say it, but we're watching Zelensky, his Twitter account put out very carefully worded strategic messages targeting Western governments and leadership. Um, we've seen him speaking to Russian, the Russian people, as well as rallying his his own folks, as, um, as it appears everyone still has internet access there so far. Um, it's been sort of really interesting to watch that play out. And, you know, this might be the first time we've seen a conflict of this size happen when everyone has access to information, at, you know, as it's happening. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think Zelensky has, has been masterful so far. Uh, obviously, he's he's in the crosshairs, and so mm-hmm. literally before this even airs, something could happen here. So, Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and I, I, I think about, I'm trying to hedge my own optimism for the Ukrainian people here, and I think there are a couple of sort of, I would say, markers I'm putting down to think about, all right, what what are the problems or the obstacles that we're dealing with in the West in our support of this uh, of the Ukrainian people? I think number mm-hmm. one is that in general we have a motivated reasoning where we want to find the positives, mm-hmm. and the media I think certainly 
uh, is playing into this for understandable reasons. I think number two is we have a lack of attention span in general. Like I'm seeing everybody like with the Ukrainian colors and all that. But if this, if this is not a matter of a week or two, but is a matter of months that this thing drags out, are we willing to stick it out? And in particular, are we willing to stick it out when the consequences to us are pretty significant? Because a lot of these economic sanctions on Russia are going to hurt us too. Right. I support them. But I think it's really important, and what I'm hoping to hear from Biden tonight is an appeal to the American people to say, all right, inflation, it's going to get worse because of this. Right. You know, It might have been getting worse anyway, but you know, whether it's oil prices or the price of anything else on the international market could go up here because of, you know, everything from the fact that you can't fly over Russia anymore to different parts of the supply chain involve Russia. Obviously, the oil markets involve Russia. Uh, and then you have things like the equities markets and people's retirements and things like that. And, you know, and something like half or more of the American public has money in the stock market. And so it, are, are we willing to be like to deal with these, in some cases, minor inconveniences, in some cases, like the oil prices, depending on who you are, could be a major inconvenience. Are we willing to tough it out in solidarity with the Ukrainian people? I hope we are. But I think there's plenty of reason to be a little skeptical of ourselves here. Like I think of things like, you know, where everybody was throwing up the black squares in June 2020, and, and right. so many people I know didn't really follow up with any tangible action. Obviously, some people did. Uh, I do get a little concerned about how quickly we've rushed to this cause and how quickly we could stand down from it. Mm. I think that's, uh, I think that's right. I think that's, uh, really, uh, insightful because that's just, uh, the kind of, I think it's almost human nature at this point, our, our short attention span. Um, you mentioned the state of the union. We're going to get to that, but I think Biden, uh, did a, a few things, uh, to Mariah's point in terms of this messaging, too, that has been very good. And um, and to the uh, protests, uh, against the protests of some of his advisors, too, he really released detailed information about Putin's plans yeah. early on so that uh, they could control, like, the, the narrative that comes out. And um, I think that went a long way in stopping some of the traction that Putin's wild claims about Zelensky and the Ukrainian people and, and all that go. It's, as you said, um, it's not going to stop him from doing the worst. Uh, so it's, it's very, very bleak for the Ukrainian people. And um, yeah, so now I'm just sad and I don't know what to say to that <laughs> because... Well, can I, let me, let me inject something even sadder to this, okay, which good. is our Thank domestic, po- oh, yeah, our, <laughs> our domestic politics on this are, are what you would expect. You know, this is not the politics stop at the water's edge type moment here. The mm-hmm. American right which have been very sympathetic to Putin as Trump has, which we can we can get to Trump. But there are members of the right who have really puzzling responses here. So I'm going to read one tweet. This is from Ben Shapiro. He said... Ugh. Uh, Must you? Uh, the, <laughs> <laughs> no, you're making a point. He said the West, <laughs> the West is focused on expanding its national debt and exploding the gender binary. Whatever advantages we have on an objective level are widely undermined by a ni- narcissistic idiocy. This is what Ben Shapiro tweeted. Now... I want to focus on this because I'm seeing this is like basically, you know, he's a hammer and everything's a nail and every story has to come down to uh, identity politics and the culture wars. Right now, I want to point out a few things about this. He's saying that the reason why the West is weak is because we're focused on gender binaries. We're not focused. I guess we're not binary enough, I guess, to this point and the national debt. So I want to I want to talk to our audience about 
why the, like what you could say to something like this. Number one, Ben Shapiro was a prominent supporter of the Iraq war, continued to be long into that conflict. If there's anything that has undermined our international response to Ukraine, it's the fact that we fought a two-front war, two unwinnable wars, right? Uh, and like the chaotic uh, pullout of Afghanistan was directly related to the fact that we're overextended in Iraq and our losses in both conflicts essentially were related to each other. And he supported both. No accountability there, obviously. He talks about the national debt. It exploded under Trump. It's exploded under Republic, Republican presidencies, including Reagan, who sounded the alarms on this back in the 80s and promised to do something about it. And I have a big question, which is like, what undermines us, right? Is it that we're talking about gender too much or the national debt or the fact that we had a president who refused to uh, commit to the peaceful transfer of power and now is using as a litmus test for any of the support that he gives in the midterm elections, the fact that people have to basically say that the last election was stolen. That undermines our democracy. It also undermines our credibility abroad. Never mind the fact that this is a president in Trump who tried to condition military aid to the very country we're talking about, Ukraine, right. on right. a promise that the Ukrainian president would investigate Trump's uh, his domestic political enemy. He was indeed what, impeached uh, for that. Where is the outrage about any of this? Obviously, it's not news to your audience that this is hypocrisy, but I just want to point this out to say that there's no moral standing of any of these people who are trying to lay this at the foot of Biden or like some kind of culture war stuff that we're focused on, you know, transgender rights or something. And somehow that's what undermines our credibility abroad. Come on. Um, I love I love that that breakdown. That's what people can hear on the Majority 54 podcast. Really <laughs> helpful <laughs> um, breakdowns and, and messaging like that. Um, um, my, my last question around this, given your knowledge of like the inner workings of the like an administration, can you give us any insight into what kind of conversations are happening right now and like how, how are decisions made? In, yep. in these sort of situations. I think that Biden is running very much a traditional White House, you know, which was you know different than than Trump, obviously, on this kind of stuff. But there's a process. There's a National Security Council that weighs the various equities, and so at, in that council, you're going to have people represented from the Treasury to uh, the Department of Justice to the State Department to the Pentagon to the CIA. And so I think, in part, one of the reasons why some of these sanctions were frustratingly slow in my opinion like I, I i was a bigger fan of doing some of the more aggressive action early one of the reasons why i think they didn't go faster and more aggressive is because of process but i think the other part of the reason why i think it took them a second to get around to some of these more aggressive sanctions like the like the the sanctioning of swift right. uh the payment system or the central bank sanctions, which I think are some of the most powerful sanctions because it's basically going to freeze uh, Russian uh, currency reserves, which are held in Western banks. And essentially, we can just not honor them. And that will cause massive financial havoc in the Russian financial system, which already is why you're seeing their currency um, you know, being massively uh, volatile since yeah. the beginning of this conflict. Uh, one of the reasons why we didn't do that fast is, is not just because of our process, but the fact that I think Biden has been very 
conscious of the fact that we have a coalition that we need to keep together on this. And so I, I'm a little bit sympathetic to him on this. I would be less sympathetic if they didn't wind up getting around to the more aggressive sanctions eventually. But I think the fact that they eventually got there, I think, is really important. And I think these sanctions really are going to hurt Russia. I have all sorts of questions about why these sanctions weren't pursued because Russia was meddling in our election. But that's a whole different, mm. like I think, story and a whole different conversation. I would have loved to see them more aggressive on that. But yeah, he, they're very process-oriented, for better or worse. But I think part of the reason why the process can really help us here is that uh, I think these will stick, uh, in, in part because we have a coalition of people internationally who are on board with this. And you can't just, like, unilateral sanctions, I was involved in this at the UN, like, unilateral sanctions are, are, are limited in their effect. But the fact that we have things, like Switzerland, for Switzerland, example, who's yeah. neutral, you know, getting in on this, the fact that Germany is increasing its military uh, expenditures and, you know, like if we ever get to the point where Europe is able to uh, make any meaningful action on their importing of natural gas from Russia, which is really tough for them because they get something like 40% of their natural gas from Russia. So it's a tall order. Like we'd have to replace that mm -hmm. natural gas. And right now it, it's hard to imagine where it comes from. Yeah. Uh, but in, by and large, that's what it is. I think it's, you know, the thing the thing that people say about Trump that I, there's a lot, I have so much to say about what how this would have played out with Trump. Mm. One thing that is true is that he himself is a loose cannon, right? So his supporters will say, this wouldn't happen under him. And I'm like, I have many reasons to believe that it would, you know, in part because he let Asatia go while he was president. Uh, never mind the fact that he's said so many, you know, favorable things towards Putin over the years or the right. fact that he undermined NATO the way that he did. All Put that all aside, there is some truth to the fact that Trump's a loose cannon, so he he could be, you know, if you're on the other side with him, he would probably have done something like, if he cared about this conflict and felt like it was in his political interest, he would have maybe moved to the U.S. to high alert, like on in our nuclear high alert, whatever, whatever that means. Right mm -hmm. now, is that a good or a bad thing? Like, that's what we could debate is like the fact that people think he's crazy enough to do certain things is true. Now, what I don't know is what Russia also thinks they have leverage over him on, which is like a right. you know perennial debate. Right? right. And whether they would even take him seriously in this. Yeah. I have a hard time uh, seeing him do that because you mentioned like political reasons, but I think his personal reasons over, you know, overrule everything. And right. one thing that we've consistently seen is the ties that he has financially to Russia and these oligarchs. And, you know, we saw it long before he came into office. And uh, this is part of that predictable path that I was talking about from the beginning. So I don't think there's any doubt that he would have been soft on this kind of thing. And, and I think Putin's probably taking his shot now because of all of the damage that Trump did to NATO and the alliance and our standing in the yeah. world. And, uh, and I will say it is a great, great testament to Biden's work. Um, and I agree, I would have liked to see stronger sanctions at the beginning, but the way that he did it, as you said, building this coalition, building back our relationships with NATO and the world, uh, building back our uh, the trust that world leaders have in us, um, in the US, in a very short time after a lot of damage had been done is, um, is I think, uh, something that needs to, to be talked about more. Um, I'm sure this will be talked about during the State of the Union address, but it's uh, it's been remarkable. I, I He was yep. not my uh, choice for the primary, 
Um, I, I was looking for, you know, younger, fresh kind of leadership. Um, yeah. But uh, I think because of the longstanding relationships he has with many leaders in the world from the years that he's been in office in the Senate and as vice president, he was uniquely suited to be able to pull this coalition together um, uh, in a really meaningful way. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Kudos well, to him. Can I add one last thing on this? I think that there's this question Tucker Carlson in a couple of years ago. First Ben Shapiro, now Tucker Carlson. I know, I'm sorry. I do this, <laughs> I do this to my co-hosts all the time because I live um, in my, my day job at this, this place called Lost Debate. I spend a lot of time just monitoring right-wing media. And part of our mission is to help create, like, like to, to combat misinformation online. So I spend a lot of time listening to these people who have huge reach. But I'm sorry. Thank you, know, you for doing he, that he, important work. For, <laughs> for a few years ago, he, he said something to the effect of, why should I care uh, about Russia? Yeah. Why should I care about the Ukraine? And J.D. Vance and others recently have reiterated this, this sense that, like, and they're saying, like, we should care about our borders and yada, yada. Like, right. I want to underline this because there are many reasons why we should care. And, like, number one, this is a democracy being invaded by an autocracy. As an, I hated the Iraq war, I protested the Iraq war, but this is different than that. Like it still was wrong, the Iraq war is wrong for different reasons, uh, but, uh, and it happened, and some people are, were children when that happened at this point, so like we can go over that now, but that's not the, the crisis we're dealing with today. This is a democracy being invaded by an autocracy at a time when uh, democracy is in peril all across the world, whether it's in India or in the United States or in Canada, it's just not spreading the way it used to democracy. So this is an international fight that we're in right now. It's also, I think a lot of people don't know this, but in 1991, um, Ukraine, basically when it was established, uh, coming out of the USSR, had the third largest nuclear weapons uh, cache in the world. And a couple years later, they signed the Non-Proliferation Treaty and agreed to give up those nuclear weapons under the promise that both the United States, Britain, and Russia would have its back. And so this is really important for realism reasons, because uh, if we allow Ukraine to go uh, in this way, it will send the signal to the North Koreas, to the Irans and others that there's absolutely no reason to give up nuclear weapons or to give up the pursuit of nuclear weapons because mm -hmm. you, can't be, you can't trust the West or anybody else to deliver on their promise to defend you absent them. So it, it, people will be looking at this saying, if Ukraine had nuclear weapons, Russia would not be invaded right now. And they're probably right. Well, um, so many good perspectives, really, really hard um, conversation. Uh, so thank you for, for breaking it down and, and bringing some, some hope. I want to move on now to some very hopeful news um, that happened since the last time we recorded the podcast. So what just <laughs> happened? Um, Joe Biden has nominated Katanji Brown Jackson for the Supreme Court. Um, the confirmation process looks like I, I shouldn't say it i don't i want to jinx anything looks like it's it's gonna go pretty well what do you guys think <laughs> okay <-ish. laughs> yeah i agree i think the fact that she got three republican votes for yeah. the dc circuit i don't think that necessarily means that we're gonna keep those republican votes so i think we probably can get one or two of them but that means that the mansions and cinemas of the world will probably behave themselves in this process and th they'll they'll be able to use the fact that republicans voted for this nomination, you know, as a sort of uh, a permission structure to do the right thing here. And it's not like, to be fair to them, this is not the areas where I have too many complaints with them anyway. They've generally been okay on, on judicial nominations. Yeah, we've already got um, 
Mitt Romney called the nomination historic. Rob Portman said, I don't think this will be as partisan as we've seen in the past. So um, we do have some some encouraging statements. And it's uh, this is an amazing moment, too. And um, Mariah, I want to hear more about your thoughts of this, you know, as, as a black woman, how's this making you feel to, to see our vice president and her up there at the same time being nominated for this position? That was so exciting. Um, again, so much has happened since this nomination that I, for, I forgot to, to point out the biggest news, which is that um, this is potentially the first black woman on the Supreme Court when President Biden introduced her and, and announced the nomination. He said for too long, our judicial system hasn't looked like our country at large. And for better or for worse, we have made our judicial system a cornerstone of our country. So um, this is incredibly important. And she's just an amazing woman. And I, I love hearing her talk and yeah, super impressive. Um, she is going to have some incredibly important decisions to make right off the bat. If she's confirmed, um, we're talking about uh, voting rights, affirmative action, businesses refusing to serve gay customers, um, all of the, the big things that the Ben Shapiro's and Tucker Carlson's of the world mm. scream and rant about and, and seem obsessed with. Um, yeah. And if we could go ahead and, and, and get that confirmation done, Oh, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. Yeah. And a former public public defender, which has never yeah, yeah. never had one of those on the bench and such an important perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. She it's really it's going to be great to have her on the bench a very historic moment. Uh, I believe she's going to find it a very frustrating job for a long time <laughs> <laughs> until we can do something else with that court. But Also she's only I think she's only 51. Yes, I know. The only thing is, like, the only my only critique is we need a we need somebody who's twenty one on the bench at this point. <laughs> it's like I, I'm like a total realist about this. I'm like, let's what, what can we put somebody sixteen on there? Like, let's just go for it. Like, Other than that, in. but yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's sixteen. I love it. Yeah, I could think of a, a few sixteen year old activists who would be excellent for the Supreme Court. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> the only problem is the younger people are, the the more likely they are to change their views over time. So I'm a little worried. Get somebody maybe in their late 20s. I'll be okay with that. Somebody's going to do it at some point. I bet the Republicans do it first. Like they just, they nominate like some judicial clerk or something. Well, Amy Coney Barrett is the youngest uh, nominee, uh, I think. Is it in history? She's certainly the youngest youngest serving on the the court right now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I thought Thomas was pretty young when he came in. Lord knows I've been, he's been with me my whole life at this point, basically. Yeah, me too. And he needs yeah. to go, but we won't get into all the reporting about him and his wife and all yeah. that. But um, yeah. Uh, yeah, let's talk about the State of the Union. And, uh, and this is right in your wheelhouse. As we're recording this, the State of the Union is tonight. So our listeners get to hear us talk about it after it's already happened which gives you a great chance to like really be a cool prognosticator. Um, you know, what, what are you looking for from Biden? Like your, your podcast for, for those who don't listen to majority 54, it's a political pod, which I'm not sure. I think there's 
complete crossover for our audience. I'm sure all of our audience listens to your show too, but um, it's a political podcast about talking to friends and family with different political beliefs. Um, So what are you looking for Biden to say tonight? His approval rating is really, really low. Despite some some big victories, there was a recent NPR poll that had him, I believe it was 54% of the respondents saying that uh, his first year has been a failure, which is a pretty strong statement. Um, yeah. What, what are you looking for him to say tonight? Well, obviously, he's going to make the case for why Americans should care about what's happening in Ukraine and, and describe you know, some of the stuff that we already talked about, like what the U.S. is doing, why the sanctions matter, why the international coalition matters. He'll pivot pretty quickly, I think, to the economy and try to tell the story of how he thinks the recovery is going. And he's going to have a delicate balancing act between trying to convince people that things are better than conventional wisdom suggests while walking the tightrope to acknowledge people's frustration at the pace of change and things like inflation, et cetera. That is a very difficult task to do because you know any attempt at selling it could make it look like he's not attentive to the concerns of the American Acknowledging public. Acknowledging that, yeah. Yeah, so that I don't know exactly how he's going to do it, but that is going to be where a, like that's going to be where the art of the speech is and if I were him I would lean in on the acknowledging hardship front because this is not the election, right? He doesn't mm-hmm. need to later on he can talk about things going well. I think right now he can say, "All right, I acknowledge things are are challenging, and here's what I'm going to do. You're certainly going to see him talk about the domestic supply chain, ma- manufacturing in the United States, investment in, in, in local manufacturing. And then I think he's going to roll out a bunch of initiatives. From what I understand, he's going to talk uh, about mental health, and he's going to talk about a new mental health initiative. Uh, he's going to talk about the connection between the U.S. energy sector and, and sort of inflation. And I think he's probably going to connect that to what's happening in Ukraine and talk about how, you know, the more energy independent we are, the less likely we would be subject to some of the the tensions that Germany's facing, for example. And I think he'll probably connect that to Build Back Better and renewable energy and things like that. The challenge with all these things is that a lot of times it becomes a punch list because the criticism is often, you didn't mention this, like the common criticism of some Mm -hmm. of these things was you didn't mention the troops or you didn't mention this or that. And so the second half of these speeches, especially like the, the, the sort of last third of these speeches often feels like, just like a a checklist. I Mm, I would pay attention to the first 10 minutes. Like the first 10 minutes is really where they're going to try to frame this for the American public. And, you know, this is not appointment viewing anymore like it used to be. So it's it's limited in in the kind of impact it can have on his bottom line. But it's just one step in the, hopefully in the right direction here. I, I think it's still his biggest audience, you know, collective audience, even though, as you said, it's not appointment viewing. And you tapped into something that is, we talk about a lot here. And um, that's the difference between the punch list, the achievements, the straight up facts, like you could give bullet points about, you know, all the great things that, that have been done. But then how are people feeling? I couldn't agree more. That sweet spot of trying to appeal, uh, acknowledging that people are struggling and um, and they don't feel like the economy is there for them, even if it is factually on an upswing. You know, that is such a tricky place mm-hmm. to be in. Yeah. And um, you know, honestly, like like uh, he's not my favorite order. Um, so <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> he's. 
Um, I, you know, and it really takes an artful uh, speech to do that. So I'm going to be interested to see how he's able to come close to that or pull that off. What do you think, Mariah? Yeah, I'm hoping they shoot him up with steroids or something before this thing. <laughs> so we get a little bit of energy here. Give him an extra cup of coffee. Oh my God. Yeah, <laughs> performance um, enhancers. Yeah. I mean, he's 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 been very. Um, I don't know. I guess because there's been so much going on, I feel like we do see him pretty regularly. But you know, tonight I I will be hoping to see some like it. Like I just want to be inspired. I know all the things that are going on. I know what the democratic talking points for everything, you know, I know what those are. I, I really want to be inspired and to like feel hopeful tonight. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, one thing I hope it is not like the last time we had a big audience was right before the Super Bowl. I don't know if y'all watched that interview. I think it was with Lester Holt. It was incomprehensible if I'm being honest, mm. like he, he was asked about inflation and he, he was asked about inflation by Lester, I think it was Lester Holt, and, yeah. and basically called him a wise guy for asking the question, which is like the most <laughs> sure. important question you should be asked. Uh, and then he started rattling off, like he's like, I have these Nobel laureates and CEOs in my ear, and they're telling me inflation mm. is going to be tamped down. It was like the totally tone deaf response. It was rambling. It was very elite. It was like, hey, I talked to Nobel scientists. I think he like he named a number of Nobel economist, Nobel laureate economist he talks to. And it's like, no American wants to hear that crap. And it was That's just like, dangerously close to, I've got all the best people. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, this is where like, I think it's important for us to acknowledge the limitations. I have all sorts of opinions about what we should do in the next election, but like, it's not the time for that. But I do think, like I said, like this is an opportunity. This, this should be teed up for him. He should do really well. We're facing a national crisis. Obviously, there's a huge chunk of America that doesn't matter what he says, but there is this persuadable middle that he is convinced once before to vote for him and support him. And I think this is one of the most important moments he has to to convince those people that he's on the right track. That's interesting. Do you do you? And I know you do because this is so much the the crux of your work. But um, but I'll just ask you because I'm not sure I'm convinced that there is a substantial persuadable middle right now. I I believe there's so much polarization that um, hmm. that that the die is pretty much cast. And in terms of like how we win and what we're looking for in the midterms, it's making sure that those new voters who voted in 2018 and 2020 show up again and that we keep reaching out to the communities that we don't often reach out to the lower, what used to be called lower propensity voters, which I like to call high potential voters. Right. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, what's, but you'd probably have a, a different view on that. What do you think? I think both is important. I know it's like the cop-out answer, but it's how we won the last time, right? Is like we were able to convince uh, enough of our people to show up. We had historic turnout. Right. And we were able to win over critical populations like suburban women, for example. And you'll see like, you know, I, I forget what the polling numbers are today. I think it's 37% approval, which is really low. And he was north of 50 for a decent chunk of the beginning of this presidency. That difference matters. And the, uh, the excitement amongst the base and, you know, voters who don't always, sporadic voters as we call them, right, uh, is, is also needed. Like he needs, to, he needs to hold those two things, which is why being, you know, uh, the, the head of the Democratic coalition is always very difficult because often that suburban, 
mom uh, in outside of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia is asking for different things. And sometimes it's intention than what, you know, a base voter in Philadelphia is going to be asking for. I often think that you don't have to choose. Sometimes you do. But mm. in his case, he was able to do it once before and he was able to, to carry that support. And so for me, that does tell me that there's, there, there is, I wouldn't call it low hanging fruit, but people who were willing to consider him once before and people who certainly were turned off by Trump, who's our likely opponent next time. And, you know, and then again, we, we have all these people who are not Biden or Trump who are going to be on the ballot this next time. And so part of it is giving them enough that they can run with it. All right. Well, uh, it'll be interesting. Yeah. Strategy. Yeah. Well, we, <laughs> I went to end tonight. Here's hoping we see Scranton Joe being, yes. <laughs> being comprehensible. Yeah. Yeah. I would just keep our expectations low. You know, <laughs> like, uh, I think your HGH suggestion was actually a decent one. You know, I would, uh, that's what I would be doing. This is why, like, uh, yeah, I, my number one contribution to this in the, in the strategy sessions would be figuring out a legal way to get him as many performance enhancers as possible. You know, maybe <laughs> I'll take him down. Trump a, was on. Take him, him down to Costa Rica with me. You know, you can get all sorts of pharmaceuticals down there. Uh, well, I want to hear there, all so, about your yeah. vacation. Uh, probably <laughs> another another show. <laughs> but um, but you seem you seem rested and lucid enough for for our show today. So uh, I'm glad. Yeah, you yeah. So you caught me on the right day. <laughs> um, all right, so uh, we've taken up a lot of your time. We have a couple of things we want to do with you before we cut you loose. Uh, and uh, first, it's talk about our hero of the week. Did you come up with somebody? Yeah, yeah so, so could it be domestic or international? or yeah, anybody. Anybody. Well, I'll give it domestic and international. I think uh, on the domestic front, um, I, I like Jocelyn Benson, who's our Secretary of State in Michigan. And... She, there's nothing particularly she did. I'm sure she did great things this week. I haven't been paying attention to what she did this week, but I just know that that seems it is critical hero as of we the week, Robbie, But whatever. No, yeah. I'm kidding. That's fine. Yeah, what they did. Yeah, I don't know necessarily if she did anything particularly this week, but I just know that like I like people to be focused on some of these like down ballot races. Love it. Uh, and that's a critical one because that was that's standing between us and the election certification in, in Michigan. But right. I, then I think like the obvious answer here is Zelensky and everybody else in Ukraine who are hunkering down and defending their territory. It's super admirable and inspiring and shows that like as difficult things are for us here, we haven't been asked to put our life, not, I mean, at least I haven't been asked to put my life on the line. Um, and so I find them inspiring and it makes me want to fight harder for our democracy here. Yeah. Um, that is uh, those are both incredible heroes of the week. Thank you for giving us a twofer. And it's the perfect segue into this week's to-do list. We are talking this week about what we can do to support uh, people in Ukraine. Um, and as they're, as, as Steve said, um, they're, they're evacuating now. So um, it'll be really important to help with relief efforts outside of Ukraine as well. Um, the first thing we have on the list, and we'll put this in the show notes and tweet it out and all that good stuff, um, is um, uh, Daily Coast has created um, a bundled uh, Ukraine relief fund. So um, if you go to the link that we share um, through Daily from Daily Coast, then you'll be able to support AmeriCares, the International Rescue Committee, and World Central Kitchen. Um, 
Um, all of those organizations doing incredible work, getting medicine, medical supplies, critical aid and food to um, Ukrainians um, in Ukraine and as they're um, evacuating to to Poland. Um, also, there's some Ukrainian-based charities that we wanted to flag. Um, Voices of Children has been around for a long time, serving the psychological needs of children affected by war in Ukraine. Um, there is a GoFundMe for the Kiev Independent, which is an incredible news organization that has been um, providing really important updates um, for a very long time now, um, but they need um, safe places to go and, and other support. Razam for Ukraine has been um, critical in that country for a long time now. Um, again, we'll put this in the show notes. And then I wanted to just, I'm gonna tweet this out. There are a number of fundraisers um, for um, African and Indian students who uh, went to Ukraine to study and have not been able to leave. Um, and there are credible reports that they're actually being prevented from getting on transportation to go to the border, as well as being stopped at the border um, to prioritize um, white Ukrainians who are leaving in a moment where um, we are looking at something really inhumane happening in Ukraine, um, for there to be the further victimization of um, people who aren't white um, is, is, is horrifying. And um, one of those things, that, like there are a lot of callbacks to history um, and lessons from the past that people are recounting right now. Um, this needs to be one of them. We we can't allow um, people who who look and seem different uh, to. I mean, sorry to to die right. there any more than than any other Ukrainian. Um, so um, there are a couple of independent fundraisers that have popped up on um, GoFundMe and PayPal. I'm going to try my best to vet them as much as possible and then share them. Thank you for Great. all that. Um, yes, we're, we'll have a lot of links on our show notes this week uh, to give folks options. And uh, and that's your call to action for the week is to you know, give what you can for the people of Ukraine and everyone who is there trying to get out. Um, it's a rough, rough week to be talking about our reasons for hope, um, but we do it every week. And um, and. I'll say uh, I'll start. I want to give Ravi the last word on on this one. So um, so I'll start with my reason for hope. And uh, and I'm kind of piggybacking off of Ravi's hero of the week because um, it's uh, it's really the people of the of Ukraine, uh, Zelensky and uh, and the world community in general uh the the russians who are protesting and getting arrested under you know uh great personal risk you know it's one thing for us to go out here in los angeles and and do a rally for ukraine in front of city hall it's a very different thing to do it in moscow and it's just uh, it's so sad because it seems so bleak to see that 40-mile convoy heading towards the capital city and knowing uh, the, the pain and suffering that that's going to inflict. But the, the way that 
the Ukrainians have stood up for themselves and that the world has rallied around them gives me uh, and you know I mean we've talked about this a lot that we've seen the rise of autocracy especially over the last 15 years democracy has been taken some big hits over the last 15 years um, as autocrats have risen in power all over the world and and now by this uh, criminal act by Putin, um, we are seeing a big worldwide backlash to this kind of action, which brings me hope that we can turn it around a little bit for democracy and the path that we're on. So that's a convoluted way because I have a lot of mixed feelings right now, but um, that's what's bringing me hope this week. Mariah, you're next because I want Ravi to have the last word. (laughs) Okay, um, I get to vote today in the Texas primary, um, yeah. and I'm really excited about that. And, uh, you know, I'm coming from California where b- before it was time to vote, I got a bunch of reminders. I got a, a thick book in the mail. I got a sample ballot. I got my mail-in ballot automatically sent to me. Here, if I didn't read the news, I wouldn't know that it was primary day. Mm. Um, so I just want to, um, for people if people who live in Texas who hear this, it's going to be too late. But for everybody else, check when your primary is, put it on your calendar, go vote, do the research. I had to do um, the, the even the website. It looks like a GeoCities website where you find <laughs> out what's going to be on the ba- ballot. And it's a big ballot, so it takes a lot of prep work. But I'm super excited. Going to take the baby today. We're going to go vote. Uh, Yeah. Ravi, what is your reason for hope today? Uh, Well, I think for me, the big crisis that we've been dealing with for the past two years is starting to subside. Now, you know, who knows what tomorrow brings, but Mm -hmm. the CDC has issued new guidance that essentially uh, advises most parts of the country that they can roll back mandates and other restrictions and and uses hospitalizations and deaths as the key marker for when to decide to roll back restrictions. And here in New York, we've rolled back mask mandates and vaccine mandates for, for indoor dining and, and in other places. So, uh, and that's in response to the actual data, right? Like the data is getting better. Like there's still tragedy happening, but, but the markers are generally heading in the right direction. And so that gives me hope that, that maybe the worst of this is behind us. Love that. Thank you for bringing that up because uh, that's that is some good news that we've been seeing over this week. And and thanks for being here, Ravi, for spending yeah. this time Thank with you. us. Thank you for having awesome. me here. It's great. Thank you for joining us today. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. We have a brand new website. We've just added some pages to it too at howwewinpod.com. We've added all of our calls to action on there so you can uh, find links to the uh, to-do list. So check that out. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel now with some videos of our interviews and some clips. You'll find that there too. Send us an email at hello at howwewinpod.com. Or of course, as always, you can tweet to us at bluesboysteve and at mariah underscore craven. And then make sure you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other people find us and take action as well. Thanks so much. We'll be back with some more next Wednesday. See you then. 
Hw.